distributed stream processing frameworks are used to rapidly ingest and aggregate large volumes of incoming data. These frameworks often require the application developer to write imperative logic describing how that data should be processed. For example, a high volume of clickstream data that's getting buffered to Kafka needs to have a stream processing system evaluate that data off of Kafka and prepare it for a data warehouse or Spark or some other queryable environment. In practice, many developers simply want to have that high volume of data become queryable in the fewest number of steps possible. The end user usually wants to use declarative SQL syntax to access the data. So why do we have imperative logic along the way? Why do we have these imperative stream processing systems? Materialize is a streaming SQL materialized view engine that provides materialized views over streaming data. The materialized views are incrementally updated over time and reconciled with new data that may have come in out of order. Arjun Narayan and Frank McSherry are the co-founders of Materialize, a company whose technology is based on the NIAD paper, which was written at Microsoft Research. Arjun and Frank join the show to talk about modern streaming systems and their strategy for taking an academic paper, which was called NIAD, and productizing it. I hope you enjoy this episode, and if you're looking for any other episodes about data engineering, you can go to softwaredaily.com, you can search, you can find all the episodes about Spark or other streaming systems or Kafka, and we've got a lot of them. We also have mobile apps that you can use to find all of our episodes by topic and to find our most popular episodes. Arjun Narayan and Frank McSherry, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having us. Thank you for being here. So we've done numerous shows about the subject of a data platform. And a typical scenario is a company gets started, it's got a single operational database. I like to use the example of a ride-sharing company. And over time, the ride-sharing database gets a ton of data in it, and eventually there needs to be an entire data platform built around all its data. Maybe there's a Kafka queue, a data lake, a data warehouse, a stream processing system, Elasticsearch. Give me your perspective on the architecture of the modern data platform. I like to sort of begin by, you know, three decades ago, you'd have a database, an ETL tool, and a data warehouse. And that actually works pretty great, this sort of separation of concerns. You have your database for your transactional data and your data warehouse for your analytics. And, and these two workhorses have worked phenomenally well for many decades. The challenge today is that there's a lot of use cases that don't quite fit with this traditional overnight ETL workflow. And so we've brought in other tools like Kafka queues for real-time data extraction and data movement, and then a bunch of other tools that are manually written because the technology isn't quite powerful enough today to have that simplicity. And that, that elegant simplicity of the database ETL data warehouse has a lot going for it. And part of what we wish the world will look like 10 years from now is that same simplicity of having a database, an ETL tool, and a data warehouse comes back. Because today we have about 18 different systems that are trying to get us back to that. Okay, so you have machine learning engineers that want to use the platform for training TensorFlow models, for example. You have infrastructure engineers who want to query it for metrics data. You've got data scientists that want to build dashboards and make reports. What are the APIs that these different users want for querying the vast volumes of data across data infrastructure? I think there's sort of levels to your answer in that most users do want to simply use something declarative that specifies where they just specify what they want and then the system does the work. That's sort of the best case scenario. Most of the, the challenge is that most existing tooling do a poor job of delivering what they want. And so they have to unwrap layers and start to specify how the work has to be executed. But if you can deliver a credible experience to the end user, whoever they may be, are they, whether they're analytics, business internal analytics, or whether they're building customer-facing experiences, and these things are getting somewhat blurry these days, folks are building microservices, folks are building you know, tooling with a lot of code 
because they cannot declaratively say what they want. And data warehouses, I think, are the single best example of something that just does what the user asks them to the point where users often don't interact with a data warehouse directly today. They, they use a BI tool, which spits out some declarative code that gets run on top of the data. And that's the experience that I think that most other layers of the stack are trying to get to and just have not yet. The data across a quote unquote a data platform is not consistent. You've got your transactional database that your users are writing to. That data is being maybe streamed into Kafka and then it's being like written into a data lake. And then you got data warehouses that are reading from it. You got ETL jobs and stuff. And there's not a holistically consistent view into the data. Is that a problem? Yes, that operationally ends up being a huge challenge for a variety of data users. And the single best place where there is a consistent view is the transactional database. If you have a transactional database that is trying its best to maintain consistency, then you will have that. But then this consistently often gets lost as the data makes its way through these various pipelines, unless a data platform architect is being very rigorous about passing on some of this consistency information throughout the whole life cycle of the data. Are there specific kinds of applications in a company like data applications that need to be immediately up to date all the time? And you know, obviously there's the transactional database, but are there other applications that need to be immediately up to date all the time? Yes. And oftentimes today, folks are building experiences that are lagging, where they're doing a best effort to recover some amount of real time by giving up fidelity on the actual work that they're willing to do. A good example of this is, say, fraud detection, right? Like the fraud detection model for a payments company or a payments platform is oftentimes lagging. And that that this is something quantifiable where you can say, well, if we had moved the data through the platform faster, then we would have caught a larger fraction of the fraud. And this is also true in customer-facing experiences where, you know, this seems to happen to me quite a lot, where you open up an app and the app is not reflecting the latest transaction you've made because you made the transaction through a website and you just sort of have to hit the refresh button and wait. And these translate into poor customer experiences because the data is making its way through various pipelines. I want to talk through some different components of a typical data platform because I do eventually want to get to materialize and give a good picture for how you slot in and what kinds of problems that you solve. Let's first talk about the category of distributed stream processing systems. So there are a million of these things. Like we've been doing shows on them for for four and a half years. Okay, there's not a million, but you got Storm, Spark, Heron, Apex, Google, Beam. What is the role of the distributed stream processing system and why are there so many of them? I think there's sort of two things that are being conflated by traditional the traditional stream processing ecosystem. There's the moving the data around very fast, and then there's performing computations on this moving data. And a lot of these technologies that you've named do, in fact, do some combination of both of those. And these are sort of, they're both interesting challenges from a technical perspective. They're both hard problems. But... My view on the space is that the computations that have traditionally been possible by these stream processing frameworks has been limited. Not every stream processor that you've named is able to sort of perform the full suite of computations that users would like to perform on top of moving the data around. And that, in my perspective, is why there's been this fragmentation. So if you want to do some kinds of aggregations, one of these stream processors is going to perform better than another one. It ends up being a world where you pick the stream processor based upon the computations that you have decided ahead of time are mission critical for your use case. Frank, you want to give some critiques? Yeah, or, I don't know. Or I think, like, my guess is, I don't have the, the perspective to say why are there quite so many, but my guess is that it's just that a lot of them, this is changing, but a lot of them are relatively immature. Right. If you go back 10 years, there were a lot of Hadoop e-clones. Like people were like, oh, well, Hadoop's great, but like I need to do a slightly different thing. Or you know, I needed to go and fix that 15-second timer, so I called it my own new thing. And you know, like, why did Heron 
fork off of Storm, you know, and then there's just, you know, there's a whole bunch of, like, you read the Heron paper and there's a bunch of stuff that they say, like, oh, unlike Storm, we can do X. And then the Storm guy's like, well, we've done X for two years. You just haven't been reading, you know, the most recent version of the repo. So, like, people are just, you know, doing their own thing and still sort of getting, getting a read on what's really important to get done in this space. You know, you've got other stuff like Spark, for example. Spark streaming is definitely, they had a piece of tech and they're like, oh, geez, we got to figure out if we can make this be streaming. And so they hit it with a stick until it, until it looked like streaming. You've got other stuff like Flink that's been around for a while that was sort of early research in the open source streaming stuff. And a lot of these folks made early binding decisions that have sort of tied their hands a little bit and they've just gone as far as they can go because, you know, unlike, let's say, academia, you can't just press reset and start over on your, your platform. You've got to go with, with what you have. And different people just go in different directions. And if, if you're going to start now and say, well, you know, we want a best in breed stream processor, you'd, you'd probably, they'd probably look a lot more similar and you wouldn't need quite so many different ones as we just happen to have. When I think about a stream processing system versus Hadoop, Hadoop MapReduce, I think of Hadoop MapReduce as a pretty well-defined what it's doing. It's saying, okay, I am going to start processing all the data in my data lake right now for this particular query and give me all the data from the data lake that fits that query. Stream processing system, you are querying a stream of data that is quote-unquote in motion. And there's more questions around when are you trying to get your answer relative to? Are you trying to get an answer starting from the time that your user actually hit the transactional database? Are you trying to get your answer from the time the data hit Kafka or the time the data hit the data lake or, or data warehouse or whatever. Can you explain the role of time and how time becomes kind of this almost subjective decision around which we make different data processing frameworks? Yeah, sure. So you're absolutely right that it's, it's you can think of time as this very subjective quantity in a lot of stream processors. Like a lot of them are definitely designed to not just lock in one particular notion of time or like, like a batch processor would say like right now, is when we're going to do a thing. Stream processor, you know, almost defined by this characteristic that they are able to work with multiple different versions of the world as it's changing. So instead of you know being in lockstep with the actual state of the, the underlying data, keep a few different things in flight at the same time. And for sure, people have had different notions of time that they've started with and, and sort of moved through as systems have evolved. So you know, we started with this concept that a lot of people call system time, which is just you know, a timestamp, probably like the wall clock time or something like that, when the data actually entered into the system, and that flows through the stream process. And you can build a stream process that looks like that pretty easily. It just tells you on the other side, well, as of, you know, something o'clock, the results look like, like this and that. And this is great from the point of view of the stream processor, because it's, it's, it's all this nice internal time, and it, it can just move things along. But people realize, yeah, like it didn't line up brilliantly with what if someone outside the stream processor has a different take on what time looks like? So if, if, for example, your database is going through a sequence of commit IDs, you should probably, the stream processor should probably be producing results that line up with those times or should, should think about the value of doing that instead of a potentially different time, which is when they land in the stream processor itself. This is something that's often called event time instead of system time, which is some externally imposed times. So yeah, another example, maybe your ride-sharing example, people go and click some buttons on their ride-sharing app, and those things periodically get sent up to the company, to their, to their data center. And if someone's in a tunnel for five minutes, maybe after they come out of the tunnel, the data gets sent up in a big burst. And that's a bit awkward for the stream processors. Suddenly, like, holy cow, I'm hearing about stuff from five minutes ago. This is really awkward. You know, Maybe if I haven't been careful, I might have told people that something was the correct answer. It's no longer the correct answer. Like maybe I sent the police to look for Frank because Frank was like fell into a pit apparently, and that's obviously the wrong conclusion. Hopefully, you know you don't build your stream processor that way. But we really do need to think, yeah, about what answer are we trying to give to a person. And the tricky part, from personal experience, has been communicating with the user about what their expectations are. People want both correct answers, so don't show them something that's wrong, but they also want prompt answers, so they don't want to stick around and wait you know, for as long as the longest tunnel in the U.S. <laughs> to like, to be certain that, that you've actually heard from everyone. And there's, there's like a little bit of an art to that. Like it's, it's not obvious that there's one thing that everyone should have been doing 
for sure, I think most stream processing systems started doing something and then realized about halfway through that they probably should either be doing something different or, or be doing multiple things at once. I don't know. This is one of these things that we could totally go deep for a while and I could, I could break out multidimensional times notions and stuff like that. But I think that's with the consent of the audience only. Well, I definitely want to provide you with that consent ahead of time because I'm pretty sure that this is going to be a crucial point of discussion. But I think we should take it from a few different angles. So there was a period of time where this Lambda architecture was a thing, where basically the idea would be, look, I've got my stream processing data, and I'm going to admit that this thing is going to have problems. It's not going to be entirely consistent. People are going to be in tunnels. We're going to have other kinds of lag in terms of when my data comes in. And so I'm going to kind of use a combination of batch processing and stream processing. Stream processing will be for the things I need right now that may or may not be consistent. Batch processing is going to be my reconciliation mechanism that I'm going to run every, you know, three hours, two times a day, once a week, whatever. Tell me about the issues with the Lambda architecture and what we've tried to do to accommodate that. Right. So I think it's important to sort of look at what caused the Lambda architecture. It's it's mostly it's been that stream processors have not been capable enough. So if the stream processor could compute correct answers very quickly and have them always be correct, then we wouldn't need a Lambda architecture. It, it, it's been driven by the fact that stream processors have been very limited in what they could do. So you have to bring in the batch processor, which is the only thing capable of reconciling the answers to the true state. And the main trade-off here is the operational complexity is tremendous, right? You have typically a batch processor, a stream processor, and then some third microservice that's sitting downstream of both of those that is reconciling. So you've gone from one moving part to three. And the operational costs are tremendous. And the only folks who've been able to successfully operate Lambda architectures are the really big companies with extremely large budgets and headcounts. Most folks have, you know, often make the decision that, hey, we can't do that. We're just going to have to make do with slow data pipelines, slow ETLs, waiting for ETLs to finish. So another, like, a different take on that is that these are two fairly, like, primitive tools, yeah? Like, so the stream processor, you can think of it as a compute engine that has a 10-second timeout built into it or something like that. Yeah, we'll, we'll wait 10 seconds to get some data, and then we'll show you the results. And the batch processor is one with 24-hour the timeout that, like, every day we'll roll up things, and, and if we got some more data, good, we'll, we'll show it to you then. And, you know, each of these are fine. If those are the only two cases you ever needed, maybe this is fine. But in a lot of situations, things are a bit more fluid than that. You know, like the data, you know, for some reason, you know, maybe once every hour, there's a little bit of a hiccup at your upstream backup, and it takes a little while to get the data. But generally, it's actually current to within a second. You know, having to have that one hour actually be something that fails over, and you only see it after the 24-hour drop back to the batch processing thing because it exceeded some of the built-in latencies of the stream processor is yeah, suboptimal. And absolutely, people can take these architectures and turn some knobs and, and change them around. But there's a benefit to having a slightly more fluid system that can handle these sort of hiccups as they come and go and give you the tightest experience that it, that it can manage. And if that means that there's some data that comes in late on an hour-by-hour -hour basis, handling that gracefully is an you know, important part of a real grown-up mature system. One other moment in time before we start getting into what you're doing with Materialize, the data flow paper that came out of Google, my understanding of this paper is that it formalized the role of time as an abstraction in terms of event time and processing time and these things like windowing and watermarks and basically these abstractions that give you a framework for reasoning about time. And the Dataflow paper basically acknowledged the fact that we cannot have this perfect notion of consistency at all times from a streaming system. Instead, we're going to use these time abstractions to build a system of reasoning. You can correct me if I'm wrong and, and just explain what the role of the Dataflow paper was and, and perhaps why it didn't solve everything in stream processing. So I definitely have, like, I have a take on that, which, you know, you should ask other people for their take as well. But so the work that I had done sort of around the same time was on this NIAID system where we used more advanced notions of time than show up in the, in the data flow paper. In particular, 
times are allowed to vary in multiple dimensions. And superficially, you can say like we could have a time that has two coordinates. One is system time and one is event time. And you can talk about progress through a stream in either dimension at once. Like you don't have to move forward either in, in system time or in or event time. And that was a, that's, this is the thing that's basically tied up just about every other stream processor out there is they, they have like, okay, time is going to be an int, right? Now that time is an int, oh, should it be system time or should it be event time? This is really complicated. And it is complicated because if, if you pick either one, you're, there, there are various scenarios that cause you trouble. But if you pick both at the same time using these more advanced notions of time, then the assertion that you have to sacrifice either consistency or responsiveness is not, not right. You, know, you can get both at the same time as long as you end up with a system that very responsively tells you everything it knows about the state of the world, which happens to not always be current up to right now. And you can decide as the user what you want to do with that. You can either say, oh, I'm going to have to wait till I see the right answer because I'm part of the auditing firm and we need to know the right answer. Or you can say, you know, we have about a second and a half to show a user an advertisement. Are they going to leave? Let's do our best effort. And this can totally be up to the user of the stream processor rather than a built-in aspect of the stream processor itself is my take on that. And you know, various other things like windowing. Windowing is cute. It's not mandatory for stream processors. You can have stream processors that don't use windowing. It's very helpful. If I recall correctly, the data flow paper and a bunch of other stream processing systems are append only. So you can't talk about retracting elements from a stream. Mm. And if that's the case, you kind of got to put windowing or something like it in there to throw away data. But other systems support retractions and stuff like that. And then it's, it's not mandatory anymore. As we get into talking about materialize, I want to define your namesake. Could you explain what the term materialized view means? So a materialized view in database land, okay, so often SQL database land, a view is a description of a query. It's sort of a named quantity that presents essentially as if it were a table, something like that, but it's not actually a table. So it's, it's not a collection of records that a person has put into your database. It's a way of determining a proxy for a table. Though in a traditional database, a view is literally just the description of the query. It's not actually any data. In something like SQL, you can ask for a materialized view, which essentially instructs the database to go and determine the results, like figure out what should the actual contents of this view be if you're going to go and evaluate it right now. And this materializing the results and making it pretty quick if you want to go back and look at, look at the answers. And traditionally in, in a database, if you ask for a materialized view, it would compute the results and just sort of leave them there because, oh, it's expensive to update them if the input data change. You can ask for that. So you, know, you can ask for like on commit refreshes and it'll go and recompute your, your view for you. But it's expensive in a lot of traditional databases. And sort of the goal with Materialize, the company and the, like, the thing that we're building, is to give people this experience, but with a continually up-to-date, like always fresh view on all of their, all of their data, all of their views. And in a modern quote-unquote data platform. Actually, we, we just did a show today that pertains to this about there's a challenger bank called NewBank. And you know their data platform, they have all this work that needs to go into preparing data from OLTP data and third-party data sources and all these other things. And then they periodically use Spark to create these materialized views. And these materialized views, I think they're called data frames in Spark world, and they're eventually delivered to the end user who is an analyst or a data scientist who can finally query them with SQL. I'll say that just to kind of tee you up for talking about materialize, because my understanding is that materialize makes that process of getting a data platform into SQL queryable formats and consistency much easier. So tell me what Materialize is. So Materialize, like what you just described there, is a way to get all of those nice things that we've been talking about, like those materialized views, without having to write a lot of code that specifies how that result is to be computed. So a lot of the moving parts that you described today, which is get the data out, write these Spark jobs, have them be, you know, maybe go in and manually rewrite some of these queries so that they're more efficiently and incrementally computable. All of these you can achieve today if you trade latency by ETLing it into your data warehouse and writing a nice SQL query. And the SQL query doesn't say anything about how to compute the result. It just says, what is the answer that I want? And you write that very declaratively. And we want to maintain that user experience. 
So with materialize today, you can write down that same SQL query, and then it's materializes job to figure out what underlying data flows have to be built, what has to be incrementally maintained, so that the user can still live at this nice clean abstraction layer of thinking about their business problem, like what exactly is it that I want? And they may not even have to write SQL because they may be living in a BI tool where they are pointing and clicking and creating a dashboard that is very important to their business, which under the hood is being generated into this pretty gnarly SQL as auto-generated SQL often is. And you remove this layer of operational complexity where you need to hire expensive data platform engineers. You need to sit down and write down all these pipelines and thousands of lines of Java or Python because you can just live up in the SQL world. You want to add anything, Frank? No, I think that's, I mean, you know, Newbeck is definitely a great example. We've chatted with them going back away, the folks that have been excited about the tech underneath differential data flow and stuff above, they have some 6,000 queries that, yeah, they basically need to have them incrementally, or they would like to have them incrementally maintained because it's just an operational pain in the butt to come in every 24 hours and see, did the job complete or didn't? <laughs> right. These things fail for reasons you don't understand, and then like maybe you're on 48 hours stale data, and it's just, it's unpleasant and, you know, kind of, kind of distasteful to, you know, have to run your operations that way. And yet, like if, if all of your people are, you know, your analysts are skilled people in, in thinking about their, their problems, but they'd like to express them in you know, various ways. I think Newbank is using like Clojure and sort of Datomic style uh-huh. idioms. But you know, if you have similar, you know, this is a, a nice high level way of specifying your problems, sort of like SQL in the sense that you don't really want to have to be sitting there moving around data yourself. You know, having access to data engineers is great, but if, but if there's that latency on your path from thinking about like, oh, I could really use the answer to this particular question, do I have to throw it over the wall and have a data engineer write it up for me? And maybe tomorrow I'll start to see the answers versus type it in and you know, maybe in a few seconds you see the answers and then it starts to spill out in real time after that. There's just a big qualitative leap there in terms of what you can allow your, your analysts to do. Now... If I'm familiar with the typical process of a data platform and I know that there's like 15 different systems between the OLTP transactional data that is being written to like the ride sharing database or whatever, like the rides that are proceeding, how much they cost, et cetera, and the data scientist that's actually making the SQL query, what's interesting about what you're trying to do is you're, you know, it sounds like you're compressing that volume of different systems into something that's easier to work with. So can you contrast the architecture of Materialize with the typical data platform, like something like Nubank? So I won't pretend to know all the ins and outs of Nubank's data architecture, and I don't want to oversimplify like the, the complexities that actually exist out there. The goal of Materialize is absolutely not to delete everyone's data platform and replace it with Material. I mean, that, that would be that would be wonderful, but... Like there's enough weird stuff going on out there that the reality is, you know, what we love to do is slurp up, I don't know, let's say 95% of the, you know, boring little microservices that people are writing because they've just realized like, oh, geez, I really need to maintain in some key value store the current accumulation of some quantity. Let me just, you know, zip that off and post it as a microservice. There's a lot of, a lot of things like that that you could stitch up all in one coherent framework, materialize, let's say, where you could write you know, in the order of tens of lines of, of SQL to describe what you want instead of a whole bunch of different jars that you ship all over the place. And grabbing this, like thinking, thinking of all the little paths that your data might flow through through your data platform, finding some nice connected component that's relatively sizable and just contracting that down to one platform. So instead of data burbling through 15 different steps, if all of these steps can just be consolidated into some SQL rules, this would be great. Then any, any people who are consuming these data products in the organization can be sure they're getting consistent views, they can receive prompt information about how current are they instead of crossing their fingers and like, oh, it's 15 seconds for each of these <laughs> things. And this thing ticks over every hour. So, I mean, you know, you, you get a, a much more sane, integrated experience. Yeah, okay, you're going to have to like, you know, we're not going to let you, you know, the TensorFlow doesn't run and materialize yet or anything like that. So if, if you want to do machine learning type things on top of that, for the moment, you're absolutely going to need to extract your data and, and work with it there. But... The plan, the hope is that for a large fraction of business analyst needs, you know, the SQL sort of class of class of queries, that there'll be a nice integrated story there that other people can tap into with their other exotic use cases. 
And sort of not to oversimplify things, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why there's separate systems in the data platform today. I mean, there's a lot of use cases where people actually don't necessarily need real-time updates. If it's quarterly reporting, it, it, it's okay for that to be done off of us. In fact, what you might care about that is making sure you wait to get a consistent snapshot of the data because it's okay to deliver their report. If you take a few days to deliver, deliver that report, it just has to be correct. And for a machine learning engineer, a typical workflow might just be downloading a static copy and iterating because you don't want the every time you recompute the answer, because you may be debugging your model, you don't want the data actually changing when you are iterating on your model. And there's also good reasons for the OLTP database to be separate. And in fact, I think the OLTP database is the thing that's probably going to be kept separate forever. There's a nice joke that you know your OLTP database you'll have somebody watching it and a dog to watch that person to make sure that they don't touch the OLTP database. And it's a very, very important separate resource separation because you can't just have an analyst sort of waltz in, add a few indexes, slow down all the writes, and all your transactions now take five times longer than they used to. And so you often do want to maintain the separation of systems where you know, step one is the OLTP database stocks are a very restricted set of customer-facing, low-latency, critical user-facing things, and then stuff is ETL'd out or there's change data capture that's coming out of that OLTP database. And then and then now we're in the zone where all the other stakeholders at the company can have free access to this changing data. But it's important to realize even in that world, you are going to have separate systems here in order to maintain separation of concerns. So if we're talking about getting the data from the transactional database into a place where the data scientists and data analysts can query it. I'd like to understand the architecture for what you're reading. Like, are you reading the database write-ahead log? Are you taking a snapshot of my transactional database? How are you getting data into your system? And what is the series of steps to getting it there? So a lot of a lot of transaction processors, in fact, you know, I'd say most of the serious ones have the ability to spin up read replicas, for example, right? So you have the main transaction processor that's actually handling is the source of truth and is able to feed what's called change data capture out of the, the database to inform, let's say, read replicas, places where people can go and get read access to the data without impacting the main transaction processor. And they have, they have machinery for this. So MySQL has a bin log that it sort of Produces it talks about what are the you know the committed transactions that have gone on in the database. It's used both for recovery and also just other people can look at it and get a record of, of what the database agrees has happened. And at the moment, we're using some other tech that that people have done. There's a thing called Debezium out there now, which which interfaces with a bunch of different databases and tries to put the results of these logs into some common format that it drops into Kafka. Kafka is one of the places we can read data out of. Uh, in a somewhat unified form now, and we sort of just tap onto that Kafka bus, if you will. Material is now this freestanding, decoupled system yeah, that is pulling data as quickly as it can out of out of Kafka, usually limited by the, the speed at which it's put in there, and looks now like a replica of the database. Yeah, a little bit of lag because it's not literally the exact same system as the transaction processor, but you know the use of appropriate use of logical timestamps and stuff like that to keep us informed about like what are we really surfacing, what transactions are we revealing, is you know, keeps everyone sane, at least. Okay, so tell me more about this. So I, let's say I get all the data from my transactional database into Kafka, and then it's eventually being read into, is it, is materialize a database? Is it an in-memory system? Like what am... Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. Okay, so this is this is the same, totally same question. Okay. In a lot of ways, we look a little bit like a read replica from the outside, in the sense that you can show up and you can start asking us questions about like, hey, here's an analytic query I'd like you to, to answer for me. Here's, you know, I'd like to create some views. I'd like to create some indexes. But you're not allowed to do inserts or deletes just because we're mirroring this, this other source right. of truth. But internally, we look very different from a traditional database. We look a lot more like a data parallel data flow processor at that point. So we have, you know, large number of worker threads spun up potentially across multiple processes if you've got that turned on. And internally what we're doing is we're taking each of your queries and instead of processing the way a database would process them, which is this, this pull model where you sort of go through and you start trying to work your way through the query surfacing records as you go, a lot of the data flow settings, the, the data parallel compute type stuff, build data flow graphs, which say uh, it's, 
essentially it's like a push model, which says, starting from our inputs, imagine we're going to force all of our data into these data flow graphs. So we're going to join these two things together and do a reduction and join it with a third thing, build out a data flow graph that, that describes that, and start pushing what are essentially these changes into this data flow graph. A lot of the changes at the, at the beginning are just saying, like, oh, previously we didn't have any data, now we have some data. But once that's reached a sort of steady state, the changes start to look like additions and retractions of data. So if, if someone's updated a tuple in the transaction process, we're going to get something that says, like, oh, geez, the, the, this value has changed. We had previously been feeding into a max. We're going to have to figure out how to find the new correct answer, be darn sure that we get the right answer out. And you know, a fair deal of care has been put into making these data flow graphs be responsive. So you know, if a single record comes in changing one of the inputs, we want to make sure that we do a proportionally small amount of work propagating that through the data flow so that you get the refreshed answer about as fast as you can. But yeah, internally, this looks a lot like a more big data-y data parallel processor with lots of sort of sharded workers and sharded data flow operators that exchange data between them and a little less like the way an OLAP, an analytic processor would look. So if I think about my transactional database, it's got like tons and tons of users. It's got tons and tons of, you know, it's got records for each of those users. It's got, you know, I don't know if, if it's a ride sharing database, it's got rides that are going on. How do I figure out what data or how do you, I should say, how do you figure out what data is materialized in that data flow graph? Because if I was to keep the entire database, the entirety of my database in that materialized graph, that's probably going to be really expensive, right? I mean, it could be. So we, we give you the ability. So when you, when you turn on materialize, you've, in fact, when you turn it on, it's not bound to any particular source of truth database. We have you create sources, essentially, materialize, which announce, I'd like to go and I'd like to grab the stream of changes that correspond to some table in some database or potentially a set of tables in a database. And you definitely don't have to mirror the entire database. Though what we are going to do almost certainly is if you identify tables that you want to pull in, we're going to end up almost certainly mirroring what's going on in those tables. You can certainly, like if, if it turns out that you want to filter or project before capturing that, so if you, if you want to pull down your customer's file, but you really only need, for whatever you're doing, you really only need you know four of the columns, let's say, because you're just trying to you know, figure out their current location and some billing information, and you don't need their last 27 logins or something like that. You can project out all these columns before they get materialized. But yeah, no joke, when you pull down the data, it's for these fast incremental updates, we're going to be wanting indexed in-memory representations of all this data. So if you've got a join going and one new record shows up, we want to very quickly figure out, geez, what does that hit? What are the, the implications of this new record? And one of the inputs to the join we don't want to go back to the transaction processor and burden it with a question of like, could you look this up for me or anything like that. So we're going to end up mirroring those parts of the data flow graph that are crucial for, for reacting promptly to changes. Let's take this from the user's perspective. I am a data analyst. Let's say I want to create a materialized view and then query it. Take me through, let's, you know, maybe you can invent a query for this, this ride sharing system and take me through how the materialized view is created and how, you know, the life of a query. Right. So a user of materialize today, materialize looks, feels like Postgres. So they use, they can use a PSQL, the out of the box Postgres client, and then they connect to materialize. And the first thing materialize wants to know is, you know, what data are we talking about? So you can create these sources like Frank mentioned, which is akin to a create table statement. It says, you know, go connect to that Kafka topic where you will find some Avro or some protobuf or some JSON and get all of that. And here's a schema, and you can use a schema registry to have that auto-populated, or you can manually specify schema, or you can, Postgres has lovely support for JSON, and we follow that dialect. So you can say, oh, you're going to find, get everything and call that one single column with a JSON blob in it. And then you can progressively unpack it by creating some views over that. So you could say, well, now that you've got this one source that is JSON, create a view over that where you should find you know, a column named name. And I want you to get that out and interpret that as a string. You might, you might find a column named account number, interpret that as an int. It's very much like you write a select query where you're selecting as a table and you may play around with that a bit. And you say, ah, that's a really nice query. I want to keep that around. So you could copy out that select query that you like and prepend it with create view 
as select so-and-so. And then what's nice is you can chain these views in the same way as you may, you know, in the past have had to chain microservices where they're progressively unpacking data. The other thing you could do is you could take, you know, five of these sources and join them together because you may have a, they may actually be coming from five different tables. There may be a user's table, there may be a transaction's table, there may be a driver's table. And then you can, you, you may want to create a view, which is what are the last 10, I don't know, what is the sum of the costs of the prices of the last 10 trips per user, right? So that may require going by the US user's table, the payments table, the rides table, however you've organized your data, and then joining across all of these things. And then traditionally, you know, stream processors in the past have not been quite capable of, of that. The join's the hard part. In Materialize, you just write the SQL, says you know, A join, B join, C on, on your join condition. And of course, Materialize is going to have to keep some state around in order to surface those joins. And part of the, you know, if, if I were to identify one of sort of three or four core innovations is sort of being able to do that without really breaking a sweat even if the state to be managed is quite large. But from the user's perspective, I mean, they don't really care. Like, you know, they don't want to care. They're in the unfortunate position of today's tech stack of having to care about these questions. But with Materialize, they just write the SQL query. And then eventually, the, the final view that they have, they could say, hey, materialize this view eagerly. So instead of create view, they write create materialize view. And then they have one of two options, which is they could take all the changes and have Materialize eagerly push them out to some streaming message bus, so they could have that be sent right back to a new Kafka topic, or they could connect to it and run select queries against that view, where the user just says, you know, select star from whatever that materialized view name is using, again, a standard Postgres connector, which is present in pretty much any framework or language. And so what's nice is from the user's perspective, from the app implementer's perspective, you know, they're just writing SQL queries in the Postgres dialect that they've probably been familiar with for over a decade, and they're declaratively specifying what they want without having to say, well, this join is really hard, and you got to manage the state, and I have to build a data structure to manage all the state, and I'm going to build a microservice to do that, and I'm going to put that in some NoSQL store. That's sort of traditionally been the answer to build these large stateful data pipelines. Instead, they say, nope, nope, here's the SQL I want. I just want this to always be live. So they interact with it very much like they would interact with a data warehouse, except that it's real time. I mean, definitely one way to think about it, or like you know, the ideal look and feel from, from my point of view is that this is like a database accelerator in some sense. Like you use exactly the same way you'd use it for BI in the past. It's just, it goes really fast for some reason. Where that reason is essentially that you've engaged in this contract with us that you're going to be interested in the same thing over time, right? So like a standard analytic platform is surprisingly good at taking queries that had no relation to anything you've asked previously and grinding through them really quickly. The value proposition here is if, if you want to look at something that's pretty similar to what you looked at before, like the same view, we're going to be surprisingly fast at, at keeping that live for you. And what we found is that there are a lot of people who, yeah, that's what they want, right? They're, they're using dashboards. The dashboards are asking the same questions over and over again. And, or you know they're tracking various metrics. They're doing monitoring of other sorts, and rather than hit, you know, they want the same experience, but rather than hitting an analytic processor that has to go and work quite hard to figure out the correct answer again, just getting a little ping every time there's some changes, or you know, otherwise, you know, a concise representation of what the answer is without doing all that work over and over again. But same look and feel really is the goal. To revisit what we discussed earlier and and take a step away from the materialized architecture for a second. The problems inherent in the stream processing systems where you have like a rider who goes into a tunnel for a bit and they lose their connectivity and you don't hear from them for five minutes and therefore the whatever SQL query is querying the data that has hit the data platform, that SQL query is basically invalid for those five minutes. And then the, the person comes out of the tunnel, they reconnect, there's a big burst of data that hits your data platform, and then suddenly your, you know, whatever standing query there is suddenly gets updated and reconciled. That issue still is going to exist with Materialize, yeah, right? Absolutely. Yeah, so there's no magic that figures out, like those five minutes, you know, the world has to wait to figure out what the, what the right answer is there. And the best that you can hope for, for our take at least, is the best you can hope for is clear answers about what you are seeing. So for example, 
getting interactive, you know, working out the UX for this particular dimension is a bit wonky, but like you ask a question, getting back information that says like, as of right now, system time, this is the spectrum of correct answers. You know, like we can tell you for sure about things from five minutes ago. We can't tell you for sure about anything before that, but if you want to stick around for a little while, we can get you that answer. And you know what an answer actually means when you get it back, like what is it current with respect to in various time dimensions is something that fortunately we have the, the tools to reflect back up to the user. Figuring out how to inform people what they're actually seeing is a little, a little crazier because there are different, different people have different needs, right? Like, you know, you want to see the car on the map moving, even if you're not really sure where it is. So make a guess is one requirement for an app. How much did you charge my credit card at the end of the trip? That's a very different thing. And you kind of want to wait to see how that actually worked out before you show it to someone. So, you know, we do want the underlying technology to be able to handle both of these cases. The UX side of, if you just type in select my money from account and press enter, how long should we wait? What do you actually want to see is a little, little more awkward. We haven't, no particular magic yet thinking through what, how we want to surface this up to people. But internally, we know exactly the, the correct answer at various different time dimensions. Yeah. The applications that you have built with Materialize, I understand that there's some connection to the NIAD paper. You've mentioned this once. And there's also this timely data flow project. Can you explain the circumstances that led to the creation of Materialize, the quote-unquote computer science that led to this thing? Sure. So there's, so there's some technology that, that led to it, and then there's some social things that actually resulted in the formation of the, of the company. So technologically, way back when, so I was many, many years ago at Microsoft's research lab here in, in Silicon Valley. I suppose we're in San Francisco now, but here relative to Microsoft up in, in Redmond. And there are a really cool group of people there working on a lot of really interesting problems. One of them, for example, this is where Dryad Link, I don't know if anyone's ever familiar with that who listens to this, but this is like a precursor to Spark. Well, it's like four years before Spark came out, there was already in C Sharp, a nice link-like language, which is essentially the, these idioms of you have data sets with dot select, dot filter, dot, you know, all these, these sorts of things on them, dot join. And you build up data flows by tricking people into expressing things declaratively. That team did a lot of really great stuff and are mostly, you know, at Google now. But we, while there, took a rev on that, which was this NIAD project that was, ah, surely we could be able to do similar sorts of things, but with uh, initially it was iterative computations is actually what we were looking at. It was like putting loops into computations, but that pretty quickly turned into stream processing. Like the the interesting thing about iterative computation is that you have some state that you can return to relatively quickly. You know, Spark style computations can handle a lot of state, but each time you come back to that state, you got to load it back up again, and it's kind of kind of slow. Anyhow. At Microsoft, there's this NIAD project that was really the, the genesis of this, this timely data flow work where we sort of went pretty deep on what if we commit our computation to a really strict data flow graph, a uh, pretty expressive one, but like serious business, we're going to hold on to this, this data flow as, as our guiding principle. And when you think about that for a while, what you end up with, what we ended up with at least, was this timely data flow model where data circulate through data flow graphs and are all timestamped with logical timestamps. That's not fundamentally new. But the system underneath it took advantage of this in ways that people hadn't previously pulled off, which is sort of cool. And it had some really nice performance properties and went fast. And, and then you know, within the year, Microsoft dissolved that lab and we all got scattered to the wind. So I, I wandered away and took a few years of vacation, sort of surfing in Morocco for a bit and programming in Berlin and just doing random stuff like that. And I uh, picked up Rust and started using Rust, which is great. I like Rust a lot. Other people might not, but it really worked for me. I happily was happily typing up timely data flow, differential data flow stuff, and having a fairly simple, simple life. At which point Arjun showed up. Arjun, I don't know, I probably shouldn't tell his story for him, but had been following this work for a while, to my understanding, found it very stimulating and interesting and liked it. And he can embellish that if he likes, but came up with the observation that this is great. You typing on this, this system is adorable, but if you actually want to see if it has any legs, there's going to need to be people who do annoying bits of work. You know, get people who write you know, interop layers, people who write documentation, people who do testing. You're not going to do that stuff, me, Frank. And the right mechanism to cause this to happen is actually to form a company, you know, to put together something that is going to attempt to turn the good things in this space into value for people and, and form the cycle where you then get to pay people 
to make sure that this is actually a good product that is actually as valuable as it can be to people in enterprise infrastructure, for example. And a you know, positive virtuous cycle happens where you make more people happier and happier and you make the world, at least of enterprise infrastructure, a better place. This is a very computer science explanation of what a business is. I tried to make it sound as good as possible. Like, as opposed <laughs> to like... No, it's beautiful. Actually, very objectively and accurately defined. So let me, I'm going to pause there and let Arjun correct that as he sees fit. That's a lovely, adorable story. <laughs> Here's the real story. So <laughs> I was a lowly grad student working in the research mines, actually on differential privacy, which Frank co-invented before starting NIAD, the NIAD project. When I had come across, you know, in the research field that I was on, which was distributed systems, the sort of seminal works that were happening while, while I was in grad school were the Spark paper and then the Spanner paper, and then the NIAD paper, which sort of were the big award-winning papers in around 2011, 12, 13, while I was a grad student. And as I was following all of that, it seemed a lot more interesting to me than differential privacy, not speaking purely personally. And I had been following the NIAD work since then. I eventually went on to work at Cockroach Labs because I, I, I found the, both projects on sort of very different areas of sort of the data life cycle. Sort Cockroach of Labs being Spanner. Cockroach Labs being directly inspired by Spanner. CockroachDB being directly inspired by Spanner. But I always, always thought that, you know, that CockroachDB is great. And if, if it succeeds, it will have solved the OLTP side of the data platform equation. There's still all this other stuff there that really is looking to be cleaned up quite a bit because from my perspective, it looked like a morass of microservices that, you know, extremely painful from a software engineering point of view. What Frank had essentially built over about four years in Rust was akin to a, the analogy I would use is he had built the query execution engine and nothing more. And a query execution engine in a database is, is not sufficient to be used as a database. There's all the other parts of it. There's the language, the parsing, the planning, all of these things that, that still remains to be done. And my, from my perspective, that could only really be fully achieved with commercial backing because the scope of the engineering required to get that done is beyond a single person's capabilities. Or interests, as it turned out. Right. You know, right. I was like, as a person who's just happily, you know, occasionally going surfing, occasionally having beer in Berlin or whatever, like the idea of working really hard to have, a, you know, standards compliant, you know, parsing, you know, actual SQL 92 and all of its warts, just not, you know, doesn't make you happy. But, but when you actually think about we're going to make a real product, then there's now like a proper motivation to actually say like this, this is valuable if we can do all of these sort of gross things and, and remove pain that other people are actually feeling right now. Right. So one of the sort of product decisions that we've made is that materialized looks like Postgres to the end user. And, you know, that's very much a compatibility decision because if we truly want people to get access to real-time data, they are going to do so from, you know, they may not be doing so directly. They're going to do so from BI tools, for instance. And BI tools know how to speak to Postgres. You don't really want to get into this business where, where you've invented a new dialect of how to talk to your stream processing framework and then have to go and rebuild all these integration layers. In fact, you just want to have drop-in compatibility and just straight up lie to the system that, hey, as far as they're concerned, they are talking to Postgres. Like They're talking directly to the OLTP Postgres database. They don't ever need to know that, in fact, you know, no DBA in their right mind will allow the BI tool to hammer the OLTP system. But nonetheless, that's the easiest way for the BI tool to live. And that, that's the sort of architectural decision that requires some amount of commercial backing. Because truth be told, Postgres is has a lot of rough edges in terms of parsing, planning, translating those queries down to the actual data flow graphs, which you really need to get to you know, 100% compatibility because otherwise the BI tool is just going to error out. Tell me more about the process of taking a research paper and productizing it. One nice thing about academia is there is a lot of similarities to the entrepreneurial journey of spending a lot of time prototyping, testing, iterating. What I would say is it's not always clearly a good thing to build a company around 
software. There has to be a market need. And I think there's oftentimes research projects that are shoehorned into a commercial venture without there being an obvious need for that product to exist. And so I think the most important thing is to step back and, and sort of look at it from, does this thing actually need to exist? Will people pay for it? Do they actually care? Questions like that. And I think some of that was sort of inherently achieved by the fact that I had nothing to do with the Nine project. I was just looking around for, you know, I, I was feeling the pain as a software developer for what big data engineering things needed to be fixed. And from my point of view, it was OLTP and streaming sort of real-time OLAP. Spanner, Spanner had this commercial backing of Google, and they had sort of internally faced some of those pains of NoSQL, which drove the development of Spanner. But I think one thing that was helpful was, you know, I, I had no particular affection for Nyad out of having sort of built it myself. That was all frank. But I had come at it from a, you know, the market clearly needs this. I need this because I am trying to build applications that are effectively materializing various views and it's incredibly frustrating to do manually via gluing a bunch of microservices together and sort of went and dragged Frank and yelled at him a bit to you know, maybe take this a little bit more seriously than a random open source project. The nice thing that I will say, academia, there's a spectrum. And on one end you have like the purest of academic research that's very ivory tower stuff. On the other end, you maybe have industry. And there's been a lot of smearing in between with a lot of open source projects where like a big transition for me personally after leaving Microsoft was putting stuff out there in, in the open, open source stuff and doing open development out there and having people come back and complain when it was like, you know, there's some grotty corner that was supposed to work but didn't. That in academia, you're just like, oh, yeah, 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 it's fine. Like either we can fix that or who cares? It's not even a big deal. Look at our plots. And actually trying to fix these, these sorts of things so that it... Personally, at least for my, my part of the journey, like put me on a bit more of a path of like, oh, you know, some of these details actually matter. Like they're not going to get you a fancy prize or anything like that. But if your system is a bunch of a few clever ideas and nothing else holding it together, it's not, not nearly as sort of rewarding, I guess, as something that actually does what it says in as many cases <laughs> as you can manage. So I was personally at least heading in that direction already. Like the whole business need and stuff like that, that's you know, beyond my ken still at the moment, but getting a lot closer to like actually solving real people's problems. It's, I don't know, yeah, it feels good. Making, making academics happy is not as satisfying as you might think. We've glossed over some of the architectural details because you can't really discuss them in an hour, much less on a podcast. What have been some of the acute challenges of putting this thing into production, of building a production system that serves queries the way that you want it to, that has the correct user APIs that you want them to. Tell me about just the process of productionizing this system and just the nitty-gritty engineering pains. Right. So some of this, you know, with, with a little bit of forethought can be made less painful. For instance, we're working with a series of design partners who, you know, are giving us the sort of feedback, early feedback, before we sort of sort of put this out there for anybody to use. The second thing is an intentional decision to very carefully control the deployment environment. So while well, Materialize runs fine on, on, on your laptop, that's not the intended production use case. Building with an eye towards owning and operating a cloud service from day one as being the only serious production environment that we consider, it really helps narrow down the list of things that could possibly go wrong, right? So you don't have to worry about what will people's experiences be running on some weird operating system with some weird... We carefully vet the production-ready environments that Materialize can work on. And, and then hopefully the user's experience is, you know, they, they don't have to care about any of these things. They just, they, they, they talk over a network port to SQL just as they might to, say, Aurora or cockroach there's like on the like nitty-gritty side at least there's definitely there's like a few things that come up that are i don't want to say unanticipated but they're they're potentially surprising if you come at this just from i'm going to build a database point of view so like the if you try to turn standard database queries into streaming data flows you immediately have a few challenging exciting problems like one of them is you've got to make each of your queries into a data flow and you can write some weird stuff in sql right you can write all these you know deeply correlated subqueries that you have to go through a decorrelation process if you actually want to turn them into a nice flat relational plan. 
And in some systems, they just, they just give up and it's like, oh, it's too complicated. Let's just, essentially, let's just shell out to the subqueries we can actually execute just as queries against the database itself. It's fine if things are too complicated. And we just don't have that choice. Like we have to actually figure out how to get 100% you know, conversion for SQL queries into data flow. Otherwise, we're just not viable on that class of queries. And this has involved some, some great work by some of the engineers that we have. We've been really helped by working with some pretty great employees. The engineers that we have have come in with a lot of really solid background on, you know, this is this part of the database and the intended look and feel, or, you know, we've got some other folks who sort of deeply understand relational algebra and decorrelation and stuff like that. This has really smoothed out a lot of the bumps that would otherwise potentially surprise people if they just started to try to hit this together with hammers. Yeah, there's other fun questions like query optimization for a database is a little different than for a stream processor. Like in a database, you're trying to get the answer back, like an analytic processor, you're trying to get the answer back as fast as possible. We'd like to get you the answer back as fast as possible too, but we're definitely very concerned about the standing memory footprint of a query. Because if we're going to maintain this, you know, we need to keep some stuff resident in memory. And we could plan a query maybe a few different ways. And if one of them has a terabyte of data just sitting there hot that we're constantly doing random access into, and a different one just has a few gigabytes, the few gigabytes one is pretty appealing. There's, for example, one of the one of the nice benefits of using timely data flow as opposed to some other stream processors is it has some functionality that allow you to share a state between different data flows. And this is really helpful. Like, so if you have your customer's relation and your customers have a customer ID, which is their primary key, we're going to go and index that stream of changes by that primary key. And anyone who needs to use that customer's relation, any data flow that needs to use it, can share the same in-memory asset across all these data flows. So if, if you've got 20 analysts who are trying to spin up queries that involve, yeah, let's just say standard relational, you know, primary key, foreign key type things, it would be too bad if each of those 20 people had to create a new data flow with independent memory requirements that each mirrored the sources of data that they were working with. And that's what a lot of the stream processors would do at the moment, which is one of the reasons probably that they haven't taken over as like a scalable, scalable in the sense of a number of analysts infrastructure. Whereas the hope here is absolutely, you can point to 100 analysts at Materialize, and although they might have different questions that they're asking, if they're using the data in the same way, right? Essentially, if they're, they're joining you know, on foreign keys of, if you have like a ride descriptor table that has a customer ID and a driver ID in it joined against the customer and driver tables, yeah, we're not gonna need to spin up any new in-memory assets for that. And this is like one of the things, it was sort of not so much a speed bump, but like a fortunate consequence of using the timely data flow tech. Mm. But it's the sort of thing that would definitely be a, a bit of a hiccup if you tried to turn this on in something like, let's say, Flink or Storm. Let's close off with a little bit of discussion from the go-to-market point of view. So, <laughs> yeah, Frank, Frank, the chief scientist, I believe, is pointing to our... Definitely not chief go-to-market <laughs> expert. So I've talked to a lot of, a lot of companies in you know, various areas of the data platform world. And, you know, I definitely know that, like, the buyers are ready to say, take my money in, in many cases, but you obviously have to provide them some, some value. You know, you have to go through this process of kind of proving things out. Tell me about the go-to-market strategy and, and how you convince people to use Materialize. Right. So one thing we've been somewhat surprised by is just how much appetite there is for real-time data processing infrastructure that actually works. You know, we, we spent the last year quietly working on building Materialize without much of a public presence. But a large part of our intention is to make a version of Materialize freely available to developers to prototype on their laptops. A lot of what we've been surprised by are sort of the new use cases that come up. This isn't a you know, your X but in the cloud, right? Like there, there's, a, there's a set of well-defined pieces of infrastructure that are well-scoped, people know what the expectations are. One of the nice things about something like Materialize is it enables things that haven't been possible before. It's more akin to, to something that developers really want to get their hands on and play with. So Materialize has a free and source available tier, not yet, but perhaps by the time this podcast is published. And our belief strongly is that you know, folks are going to want this is a serious piece of their core infrastructure. They're going to want help with productionizing it. And commercially, Materialize is available only as a hosted cloud service, where you know, if this is part of your production infrastructure, 
you're going to care about downtime. You're going to care about high availability. These are things that you know we will gladly take off off of your hands because we are the experts at running and operating Materialize. And maybe to to close off the strategy of open source versus non open source. I think it sounds like you've gone more with the Snowflake direction of closed source, kind of this is a complicated piece of data infrastructure, we're going to abstract it away from you and give you a managed service, but there's not going to be an open source ecosystem around that? There is, I don't know when this podcast is published, but maybe there will be already a source available version of Materialize. Oh, okay. Oh, awesome. All right. Well, that's great to hear. Guys, it's been great talking. Any closing thoughts or... No, this has been super fun. I mean, I, you've drawn out a bunch of really cool things that it was great to be able to talk about. And plan is in the in the near future to be able to tell people even more going forward, and people should be looking for that. Um, okay. Basically, as soon as this goes goes live, we'll start putting out content. So awesome. Well, I will be following you guys closely. Thank you very much for taking the time. <laughs>